Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. Welcome, everyone. Today, my guest is Chris Clow, editor of Reverse Mortgage Daily, to talk about recent CFPB actions and the rising popularity of ADUs as cities try to tackle a lack of housing. First, here's a word from our sponsor. I'm Diego Sanchez, Chief Operating Officer of HW Media, and I'm here today with Melinda Wilner, who is the Chief Operating Officer at United Wholesale Mortgage. Melinda, so good to chat with you today. Great to chat with you as well. Thanks for having me. So obviously the borrower needs to be front and center during the origination process. What other clients and partners should loan originators be thinking about, especially in a purchase market? Yeah, that's a great question. I think number one is the people involved in that actual transaction. It's their transaction too. The borrower is going to remember part and parcel, you know, the entire thing, whether it's the what the realtor did, what it was that the loan officer did. So uh, I say, you know, most importantly, the realtors that they're working with, making sure that that's a smooth transaction, whether it's somebody that they've already done business with and they'll continue to do business with, or maybe in a really great scenario, they can wow the other realtor who they don't do business with, and that's a future uh, source for them. Or should anything happen? with their referral partner as well. Um, But really, anybody who has access to people thinking about moving or doing anything with their mortgage is huge. Um, You know, financial planners have always been a great resource. Um, Divorce attorneys have always been a great great resource. And then, you know, the obvious ones like, you know, builders, I think um, a little bit harder for some people to conceptualize new builds and breaking into that community as well. But really important for loan officers to to be looking at, at builders as well. And then again, you know, anything that really touches um, people in the community, anything that even remotely thinks of home buying. Melinda, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your insights. Thank you again for having me. Appreciate it. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Sarah. Appreciate the invitation as always. Love having you on. And uh, we have a lot to talk about today regarding really, I would say regulatory and and you know legal things um, on housing markets specifically CFPB and then we're going to get into some more state and local level things. But let's start at the federal level with the CFPB. Um, and and one thing is that they've opened a comment period for uh, Regulation Z's mortgage LO rules, which I think is interesting. Yeah, this is something that, uh, you know, Reg Z, as most LOs certainly know, encompasses so much of what they do on an ongoing basis. And it's the way that um, that the Bureau has implemented the, the Truth in Lending Act. Um, so that obviously, you know, imposes requirements on several facets of business in the mortgage space, a lot of which have uh, direct application to loan originators like their compensation, their licensing, the... Um, procedures that need to be followed uh, for depository institutions as it relates to compliance, um, things like arbitration guidelines, the financing of single premium credit insurance. There's so much of this. But um, the CFPB, uh, they kind of on a regular basis because of another law that was passed several years ago, the Regulatory Flexibility Act, um, they have to uh, publish in the Federal Register certain plans for reviews of rules that the agency issues, in this case, the, the CFPB, which will have a, a, a notable impact on smaller entities. So this is really a way to try and see if the loan originator rules 
through Reg Z and by extension through Tila, uh, maybe create some financial complications for smaller entities that are active in the mortgage space. Um, you know, licensing is a is is not an inexpensive proposition. So this seems to be just a way for them to uh, to take a look at whether or not uh, there's a significant financial impact that comes from a lot of these rules. And uh, so it, the rules, when I published the initial story, they had not yet been published in the Federal Register, but the comment period usually lasts about 45 days from the moment that they're published in the Federal Register. And then, uh, you know, it, it, it might not necessarily be an instantaneous debate that emerges from it, but we know for a fact that these agencies pay close attention to the public comments that are submitted and they give stakeholders a wide variety of ways to do that, including through traditional mail. Uh, but they even say in the request for comment, maybe don't do that. The mail system in Washington, D.C. isn't particularly reliable. So if you can submit them electronically, please do that. I can only imagine, you know, just the 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 idea of someone sitting there going, "Okay, I'm going to go through all the physical mail to try to find all these comments." I thought it was interesting to bring up um, in in light of the fact that, so you know, as you said, it's it's something that they do on a regular basis. So it's not like they're going, "Oh gosh, we we think this is a problem." In fact, um, CFPB Director Chopra did say in the request that, in his experience, there is little overlap, duplication, or conflict between you know, regulations, these mortgage loan origination rules and the federal state and other rules. I'm not sure that everybody agrees with that. Um, but I, I wouldn't, you know, it's not like they're opening this up because they're like, oh, you know, this might be a problem that we need to address. It's more like this is one of those regularly scheduled things, but still a great opportunity to comment, right? They're opening up the comment period. As you said, they are very, um, they really pay attention to the comments they get. And so thought that that would be a really interesting thing uh, for people to know about. They also, um, you know, did some enforcement actions. They're looking at things. Um, uh, last week, they called into question some of the illegal fees on servicers that servicers were charging. Tell us about that. Yeah. So this is actually something that they've been uh, looking at for a while, and it's through a, an abundance of different types of businesses. Mortgages are actually just one component of it. They also look at illegal, what they call illegal fees on things like bank accounts and auto loans and student loans, which is, of course, a, an ongoing uh, big topic of conversation when it comes to people trying to keep their finances in check, of course. But when it comes to mortgage loan servicing, there was, they publish a regular report, the CFPB does called supervisory highlights, where they uh, basically highlight the different kinds of supervisory actions that they are taking or reviews that they're taking on, um, on certain policies and on business practices from um, members of the private sector. And so they basically identified four key things when it comes to mortgage loan servicing specifically, excessive late fee amounts, fees for unnecessary property inspections, fake private mortgage insurance premium charges, and a failure to waive fees for homeowners that enter some loss mitigation options. And of course, that last one, there's a lot of uh, concern about it, especially stemming from the coronavirus pandemic. You know, the, the Congress introduced legislation called the CARES Act that gave a lot of additional forbearance options to borrowers distressed financially by all of the, you know, the sprawling of impacts of the pandemic. So that's one of the key components that they're looking at here. 
But the CFPB also says that servicers charged the top late fee amount allowed by state laws, even when uh, mortgage contracts from homeowners capped late fee amounts below state maximum. So they're trying to address that. Uh, When it comes to property inspections, the CFPB says that servicers charge consumers between $10 and $50 in, in fees for every property inspection visit to addresses that they say were known to be incorrect. So they say that servicers continued to pay these home inspectors to go to the known incorrect addresses and continued to charge consumers for those visits. So the CFPB is looking for some redress on that. And then uh, monthly PMI premiums that homeowners did not owe were included in their monthly statements, the Bureau uh, alleges as well. So uh, they are taking a a pretty active posture, but that's not too surprising. You know, you mentioned um, the the director's comments when it came to the comment review or the the request for comment, I should say, on Reg Z. And it's not surprising that Director Chopra has that perspective just because his CFPB is far more active from a, in terms of the regulatory posture when compared to the CFPB under people like Mick Mulvaney or Kathy Craninger. You know, you, for years you had uh, pe- people on the other side of the aisle at that point that were saying that, well, the CFPB is weak. Their, their teeth are gone. And with the uh, introduction of the Biden administration, they see that as something that they need to correct. So Director Chopra has taken a far more active regulatory stance. So it's not too surprising that they're taking aim at something like this, but whether it actually turns into an additional enforcement action remains to be seen. But the possibility is certainly there as has been demonstrated by the CFPB several times over the past couple of years. I thought was that what was interesting about what they looked at was that all of these things seem to be things that really, you know, it's, this is not like, oh, I made a mistake and um, accidentally, you know, didn't cross a T, dot an I in, in the regs. These things, you know, if you're, if you're knowingly sending somebody out to uh, inspect a property, you know this wrong one, you're still charging on that. These, at least this enforcement or, or them looking at these actions these fees seem to be things that people could easily remedy um, because I know that there was a fear, you know, when, when coronavirus, uh, when, when it hit and, you know, all the CARES Act and all this stuff, one of the real big fears was like, okay, the, the industry is shifting really fast to serve customers in this really, um, you know, what did we always say? Unprecedented time. And, you know, they were like, okay, but we don't want to get slapped for this later when someone comes back and goes, well, you didn't follow this, you know, when in that six week period, and then as it extended, it was like, hey, we need you to do some extraordinary things and do them quickly and adjust. Um, And we're not giving you a lot of time to do it because nobody has the time. So there was a lot of fear in the industry of like, is this going to come back to haunt us? So when I first looked at the story, I was like, oh, gosh, is this one of those? But it's really not to me. These are things that, you know, even though they they do have care act um some of them connections these are not things that are like oh we're we're just looking to try to slap your hand for for doing what we asked you to do mm-hmm. yeah and uh you know i was looking more closely at uh the the documents that are related to this and there wasn't an abundance of material that illustrated how they know that certain actors are doing this. I'm sure that that's because they would probably have to name companies and they probably don't want to name companies until they issue an enforcement action. That's my guess anyway. So I'll be interested to see what else comes from this because, you know, the, the regulatory arm of the CFPB, it is a powerful agency. That's 
part of the thing that's being debated in the the highest halls of the legislative branch. You know, the CFPB is going to have to defend itself uh, soon in a Supreme Court case that argues against its basic constitutionality. So uh, it, it's an agency that has a lot of power and authority vested into it, but they also don't uh, issue these kinds of statements, documents, or enforcement actions lightly. They tend to include a lot of so-called receipts in the things that they, uh, in, in the actions that they take and in the the postures that they are uh, assuming when they're looking at these kinds of issues. So I'll be very, very interested to see what comes from this and, um, you know, if this leads to more substantive enforcement actions in the future. I will too. And it is a, a really interesting agency to look at right now, you know, with everything that happened with Silicon Valley Bank, you know, one of the things um, that people are talking about is just like, you know, we had these, the Dodd-Frank rules, um, you know, Dodd-Frank, especially for for mortgage has been huge. Um, there were also other banking um you know, regulations that came into effect after the great financial crisis. Um, and, you know, CFPB was created um, through Dodd-Frank. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty new agency as far as agencies go. And it really is a very tightly, um, they've, the constitutionality of the agency has been questioned before the, the uh, way it's set up, you know, what it does. So we will be watching that very carefully. Yes, absolutely. I mean, um, I've covered the, the constitutionality question for the CFPB, between Housing Wire and Reverse Mortgage Daily for, it seems like, the past several years. So uh, I'm sure that the Bureau isn't happy about the fact that its existence is being questioned again. I mean, why would they be? But um, the, the previous Supreme Court, at least when this question came up, did not seem particularly interested in invalidating the entire agency. Now, things have changed since then. You know, there's a couple of new justices that are going to be a part of the debate. And there's uh, there's a pretty solid uh, six to three conservative majority. So that might affect the outcome. But it also seems like the Supreme Court in the past has not been particularly interested in, in, in invalidating entire swaths of the regulatory system. So we'll see if that comes into play. Uh, it'll be fascinating to watch unfold. It'll probably happen like later in the year. That will be very interesting. Well, let's switch from federal now down to state and local because you've done some recent stories that have gotten a lot of interest. One of them is the ADU story out of California and the fact that, well, all, all the way up and down the West Coast, we're seeing a real um, sort of like a, I don't want to say renaissance because I don't know they they were ever that big, but we are seeing a surge of ADUs being built uh, permits being given for them, people living in them uh, versus even before the pandemic. So tell us what what's behind that. Yeah. So this actually got on my radar because of a story I read in my own local paper in the in the Seattle Times where uh, the the city had issued a report that was designed primarily for the city council that uh, illustrated that permitted ADU construction increased to 988 total units, which is a very, it doesn't sound like a lot. But it's a pretty sharp rise from the amount issued in 2019, which was 280. So clearly, accessory dwelling units are becoming uh, a far more uh, popular potential avenue to solve housing issues. And, and, you know, like a lot of the country, Washington State and the Seattle area in particular uh, is experiencing a housing shortage. You have, um, you know, the local county and state governments that are trying to address a pretty serious homelessness problem in in parts of Seattle proper. 
And, um, you know, as I've reported on RMD a lot too, the, uh, the, the, the tenor of, uh, senior housing issues, you know, that's something that needs to be addressed and they need to find good places for these people to, to live, uh, going forward. ADUs have a fair amount of application between what they can be used for. They might be short-term rentals at some point, or they could house, uh, an older loved one within, you know, walking distance of a primary caregiver or family member. And then, you know, in the future, maybe, uh, a younger person who is looking to maybe get out of their parents' house, but aren't quite ready to spread their wings and fly on their own. It's an option for them. Uh, so there's a lot of potential application that comes with ADUs and Seattle has certainly taken notice, but as you alluded to before as well in California, it just seems like ADU permit applications have exploded because in 2017, they were under 10,000 and in 2022, they were just around 30,000. So that's a pretty, it's a pretty massive explosion of, uh, of interest in ADUs. And it looks like most of that activity is concentrated in the Los Angeles metropolitan area, particularly West LA and the San Fernando Valley. Uh, 60% of ADU permits from California were in LA in 2022, according to an ADU building company called Cottage that's based out of San Francisco. So, um, you know, the pandemic certainly could have been a factor that drove uh, an uptick in interest in ADUs. Um, but the, uh, the, the, one of the guys that runs the San Francisco based ADU company, uh, its founder and CEO, Alex Sarnicky, he said that, uh, across California, the state has continued to pass additional legislation that makes it easier for homeowners to build ADUs. So if the regulatory barriers come down, that's also something that'll spur construction and permit applications, certainly. Absolutely. And I think it's interesting that, you know, so California in 2020 passed an ADU law that really overrode all of the local zoning. So for instance, they had to, you know, you have to approve an ADU application within 60 days, um, which, you know, before that they could just slow walk that forever. Um, also, you know, you didn't have to, uh, cities and counties couldn't require the owner to live at the property. Um, an ADU can be de developed at the same time as a primary dwelling so that they can, you know, they can both go up and you don't have to have an additional hearing. Um, you know, single family HOAs, and here's a huge one, must allow development of ADUs subject to reasonable standards. So you're, you know, so you have all these levels, right? So an HOA, you know, what power does that have? But that has power within the neighborhood. So the fact that these laws, these state laws overrode all of those, you know, county, city, and even down to the HOA level is what's really allowed it to, to flourish. And as you said, there's, you know, it's being used in places that are just already so hard to build and, and hard to get density in like LA. And as you said, for older people, I mean, one of the, one of the nicknames of ADUs is granny flats, right? right. Yeah. <laughs> Cause you're going to, you're going to have it in the backyard. So you, you have your loved one close, um, but they're not in the same house. They still have their independence, but you can watch them. You're, you can see them every day. And so I think this is um, a really great, it's great to see that that law change has really spurred a whole bunch of innovation here. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's actually something that I have a degree of firsthand experience with because my mom lives in an ADU on my sister's property. So, uh, you know, I've seen firsthand how uh, flexible such arrangements can be uh, in, in providing a bit of a middle ground for an older relative to live in close proximity to younger family members. And my sister herself has 
three kids. So at some point in the future, if there is a need for one of those kids to go into a little bit of a, you know, a transitionary element when it comes to their own housing situations, and that's an option that's on that property. So uh, it was a little bit of a slog to get that thing constructed. But at the same time, I think it's the story that's playing out in a lot of these places across the country. People are recognizing that a housing shortage requires uh, some new and novel solutions. And I think ADUs count as, even though the concept itself isn't entirely brand new, the the fact that they're catching on to the degree that they are, uh, I think says a lot about uh, people's desire to try and find new solutions to these longstanding problems. I agree with you. And it's, um, it can be sort of an instant, more, more of an instant st- solution than some of the other things, which is like, let's change all the zoning laws or let's do, um, use construction. That's, you know, a completely different process or let's, you know, I mean, this is like, I already have, I have a house and I have land and, you know, a little bit of, uh, I have a yard, I can build something right there. And so I do think that the rapid uptick in people building them shows that this was an idea whose time had come. And I would point to another story you wrote about, which is also in, in your own backyard there, about um, the Washington House passing a bill that would ban single-family zoning. So this is very interesting to me. It, it's not saying that you can't build single-family housing. So explain what's going on there. Yeah, basically, and, and this is something that passed with a wide uh, margin of yays versus nays. It was 75 to 21, which was honestly a little surprising to me that it would be so uh, overwhelming, but um, proponents of the, the the bill that was introduced in the Washington State House of Representatives said that banning single-family zoning would increase the density of housing without necessarily adding to urban sprawl and would be really crucial in addressing a housing shortfall that has contributed to high levels of homelessness, particularly in the more urban parts of the state. But I mean, the urban parts, I think, are just the most visible parts. Rural home- homelessness is uh, an issue that I think a lot of communities across the country are reckoning with as well. But um, you're right. Yeah, it would ban uh, single family zoning, which over time has the potential to decrease the concentration of neighborhoods that only have single family homes. Instead, maybe you'll see more duplexes, townhouses, apartment buildings uh, that actually make up more neighborhoods. And you know, when, when you have problems of housing your citizens, that seems like a pretty practical solution. But opponents argue that uh, mandating this from the state level is not a good idea. They think that these kinds of decisions should be kept at the, uh, at the local level in particular and maybe the county level. But um, they're just the, the way in which this passed in the Washington State House does indicate that at least here in the legislature, there is uh, a lot of appetite for uh, solutions that might have the chance to transform the way that neighborhoods look in the Seattle area and in, in Washington state more broadly. So it'll still need to get through the state Senate and ultimately it'll need to go to the desk of our governor Jay Inslee before it's actually uh, enacted into law. But if the the uh, the vote tallies in the House or any indication, then this could be something that that becomes law. And we've seen it in other parts of the country too. It's been rolled back in a couple of other parts of the country, so it's never actually progressed very far. But uh, if Washington State takes things further, then it could, yeah, it could change the way that we perceive neighborhoods here. Um, as you said, it's going to be interesting to see what what passes and what doesn't get overturned. Right, we see. 
um, you know, I think it all started in Minneapolis, right? The the original, the first major city in the nation to to think about this idea of banning single family housing was Minneapolis, and this was in 2018. And the city council, you know, adopted a measure uh, to temporarily end single family zoning. But then, you know, it in mid 2020 it got reversed. We've seen Gainesville, Florida. I'm looking at this. That also got reversed, and we see the um, New York, the New York City, um, is looking to uh, implement some of this. So, you know, you might have some initial support, and it does seem like, it, at least in the House, do we have any idea of like the possibility of this passing in the Washington Senate? I, I think that there is, especially considering the wide uh, support that um, that you saw in the House. Like I said, seventy five to twenty one. It seems like there is a fair amount of, um, obviously not unanimity, but there is a lot of appetite to address issues related to housing. And, you know, just speaking to my own neighbors, I know for a fact that uh, this has to be something that um, that legislators are certainly hearing a lot about when they actually go out to speak to constituents. So I think there's a lot of appetite to try and address this problem, but it's the how. It's always the how, you know, there are segments of, of people who might think that, uh, more, um, like either affordable housing or or multifamily housing could, uh, have negative impacts on their local communities. And those are debates that need to be heard before this is adopted any further. But I think New York will be an interesting barometer to see how far this could go because there is opposition to governor Hochul's desire to uh to end single family zoning but and and there's also been uh some changes in the local political calculus in in across new york state but she seems very determined to see this through so you know whether or not it will survive the uh the discussion at the at the legislative level and if it actually progresses to a point where uh, she can actually get something signed into law that'll be really interesting to see and then of course in in washington state because there is so much discussion related to housing, uh, it seems like there is a lot of appetite among voters in Washington State, certainly, to see this get done. Um, but you know, there hasn't been a lot of time yet for opposition to be mobilized, and I'm sure we'll see that. But we'll see how much uh, of a fight they can put up, and, and we'll see how far this can go. I appreciate that. And uh, thanks for correcting me there. It was the governor of New York State that um, is looking to have this implemented, not the, not necessarily the mayor of New York City. So I appreciate that. And I think this really goes to, you mentioned, you know, how people want to keep zoning local. This really is, to me, the fight that we're going to see over the next five to 10 years, because you have YIMBYs, you have NIMBYs, you have people who are like, not in my backyard, yes, in my backyard. And I feel like what you saw California do with the ADU law is going to spread, because if you want to address some of these housing issues, you cannot, from my perspective, you cannot just count on every single um, state county, city, HOA to do the thing that's going to be in the best interest of really seeing some change there. Um, so we'll see. Well, but to me, this is one of the most interesting things to look at because this is this is where the rubber meets the road. Like this is, we all say we want to expand housing and also, you know, homelessness or, or, or help people um, who've been shut out of housing. There, there's not, there's not anything you can do if the zoning laws are so restrictive in some places. So 
will be very interesting to watch as we go forward. Yeah. And I mean, it's well documented that there's in a lot of big communities across the country, there's a supply shortfall. You know, the builders cannot keep up with the the demand for additional housing. So that arguably necessitates incorporating different kinds of solutions to meet a very real problem. But of course, that's where the nuance and the debate emerges, you know, what solutions are the right solutions. And uh, the legislatures are good at having those kinds of debates. So I'll be interested to see how the outcomes shake out. I think the other thing, you know, uh, I've talked with this with our lead analyst, I talked about this with our lead analyst, Logan uh, Motoshami, about the fact that, you know, if if housing is set up as the way to create wealth and a major investment, then you also have to be careful about how much you increase the housing supply. Because if you, I mean, we, it is within our power right now to, you know, create enough housing that people, everybody could have a house, right? But you would lower the value of all the existing homes uh, ho- and for homeowners if you do that. So that's why I think when you look at something like an ADU law, it makes a lot of sense. It doesn't degrade the um, value of the house that, you know, it, it's sitting in behind or on the land of, in fact, it actually increases in value. So you are increasing density without really touching the third rail of American politics or one of them. Right. Yeah. And, and that's uh, a little touchy, but, um, you know, it's, it's a debate that needs to be had. And I think that it's encouraging that you see a lot of localities that are willing to, to have them because that's the first step towards a substantive solution, of course. Agreed. Well, Chris, thank you for being on the podcast once again, and we will talk to you again soon. Thank you very much for having me, Sarah. Always appreciate the chance to talk to you. Success might look different this year, but it's out there for those willing to work for it. That's why 2023's Gathering of Eagles will focus on forging opportunities, the perfect chance for industry leaders to take a proactive approach to continually move the needle in their businesses and the real estate industry at large. Gathering of Eagles will bring together the nation's top residential real estate CEOs, presidents, and C-level leadership teams to grow, network, and set the pace for what's next in our industry. 2023's GOE is at Omni Barton Creek Resort in the rolling hill country of Austin, Texas from June 18th until the 21st. Learn more and register your spot on the events page at realtrends.com. And we can't wait to see you in Austin. Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to take a minute to rate the show and leave a comment. And make sure to tune in tomorrow for more news and insight.